that is why there's still the emphasis that even if you've been immunized, you should still perform mitigation maneuvers such as social distancing and wearing masks. I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the January 13th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red Claim Credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Today's learning objectives are discuss current vaccination recommendations for people who have recovered from COVID-19 and discuss how transmission of influenza differs from transmission of SARS-CoV-2. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Allwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Thank you and welcome back, Dr. Allwater. Thank you, Faith. And uh, I know we have a, a number of interesting questions this week and let's turn right to them. Fantastic. Our first learner question is, what is the recommendation for vaccination of individuals after they've recovered from COVID-19, particularly if they are older than 65 years of age? Yeah, so of course, the, the federal government suggested that vaccine supplies should be released in every state to those over 65 years, although um, what's actually happening locally and in states is quite variable. Uh, there's no firm recommendation because there's really no data. However, uh, as long as you've recovered from the illness, so this would be typically at least uh, two to three weeks after onset of the illness, you can go ahead and either start or uh, complete your COVID-19 immunizations. I think the rationale there is we don't know exactly what correlates with protection uh, in terms of the correlates of immunity. But we know that neutralizing antibodies against the spike protein are likely one of the uh, main factors. And we also know after uh, acquiring infection that some people have differing levels of antibody responsiveness. So uh, you could go ahead and proceed with immunization. On the other hand, especially if you might not be at particular risk for problems, it's the general sense that people are protected from reinfection for at least three months and likely far longer. So if you wanted to forego immunization until later in the year, releasing your vaccine to someone that uh, has never had COVID-19 or um, just uh, in a more of a wait and see attitude, I think you can feel very comfortable that you could push this off to the spring or early summer. Okay, and our next question is, if someone receives a vaccination, can they still be a carrier of the virus to others? Yeah, so the transmission question is an important one. And the, and we're, we're just accumulating small amounts of information along these lines. Because we really don't have a clear picture, 
that is why there's still the emphasis that even if you've been immunized, you should still perform mitigation maneuvers such as social distancing and wearing masks. There's some data from Moderna, which is the message RNA vaccine, also AstraZeneca, that did look at whether people carried virus after immunization in a percentage of their studies. But again, I don't think we really have a clear picture on this. Uh, I do think as we get closer to very high percentages of population being immunized, you know, north of 60 and 70 percent, we'll have a clearer picture also of how well immunizations uh, impact uh, transmissibility. Thank you. Our next learner asks, has there been any improvement in the uptake of monoclonal antibodies? I think the monoclonal antibodies, which, uh, you know, were, there are two, uh, the one called BAM-Lenivimab and the other, which is a combination of two different monoclonals in the Regeneron product, you know, had a lot of promise, but we still don't have lots of data regarding treatment. It's only been authorized by the Food and Drug Administration for mild to moderate COVID-19 in outpatient uh, because inpatient studies were halted because of either lack of effect or worse outcomes. I think its main role probably will be for prevention in people at high risk of severe COVID-19 and following close contact and exposures, but those studies remain pending. To me, these monoclonal antibodies, I think, have a role, especially for people with immunosuppression, if they're not making uh, their own antibodies sufficiently. So people like who have CLL, uh, for example, or may have received rituximab. But a, a lot of this, I think, is also colored by the NIH and even the IDSA guidelines that really hadn't endorsed or recommended these monoclonals because of really uh, at the moment still weak data. So I think there's definite biologic plausibility for these drugs to be effective. I think you really have to get them within a day or two or three of onset after you have symptoms for them to really have a good effect. What we know so far is that at least for people that are not terribly ill, uh, that it seems to decrease the need for hospitalizations and doctor's visits, which certainly I think is important in areas where hospitals are overwhelmed. So uh, I know here in Maryland, we are working uh, to get uh, the news out so people know how to refer people for this. And, and, um, and hopefully some more information will come out that will be help convincing. Uh, it's true that in many areas uh, the, these products have gone unused, but I think it's also difficult because there's so many demands on the healthcare system, not only testing, not only taking care of patients in hospital and rolling out vaccines, but the monoclonal antibodies, unfortunately, I think have been sort of caught in many different efforts and has not received the attention it probably deserves. Great, and our next question, how does the transmission of flu differ from that of COVID? If the decline of influenza is attributed to the infection control measures we are implementing for COVID, why isn't COVID declining too? Yeah, so uh, this is an interesting question. We, of course, saw this in the Southern Hemisphere uh, earlier in 2020 when there was very little influenza despite COVID-19. But that was also when travel measures were even more strict than they are now. 
Um, and so it wasn't clear this would really hold during our own respiratory season. But at the moment, we have seen very little influenza. We've had only a handful of cases since September, for example, in our own hospital, but obviously have had uh, tremendous numbers of patients with the pandemic coronavirus. So uh, I think this speaks again to just transmissibility issues. Uh, clearly influenza, which I think we had hoped the coronavirus would exactly model, uh, would have uh, been staunched by uh, six feet and wearing masks, but this has really not been the case uh, for the coronavirus. And uh, we know that at least the novel variant, uh, the B117, which was first described in the United Kingdom, may have increased r naughts uh, by up to uh, 0.7 which might raise their our reproduction rate up to nearly two. So that means for every one person infected, they infect two others, when previously it may have rested at 1.3, for example. So, uh, so I, I think we don't know for sure, but what is clear is that compared to influenza and measles, this coronavirus is probably tracking closer to measles than it is to influenza and hence why, for example, airborne isolation has really been what's been used in hospitals uh, since the start of the pandemic. Okay, thank you. And our next learner asks, what is the current understanding of convalescent plasma? So convalescent plasma, as we've discussed uh, already, the monoclonal antibodies uh, represents a slightly different approach, but it's still an antiviral yet uh, in someone that's had COVID-19, you would ex can certainly expect a, a polyclonal rather than a monoclonal response. Uh, we also know that some people generate very high titers of certain antibodies and others don't make as much. But assuming we're using high titer plasma, there was a fair amount of mixed data, but generally supportive if people got uh, plasma early in illness, whether uh, the first few days or just requiring oxygen in the hospital uh, and not when they're in the intensive care units. So if you're critically ill, I think you're past the phase where this could be helpful. Uh, so currently the FDA's emergency use is only for hospitalized patients. Uh, we encourage its use early uh, and uh, certainly the people that seem to likely benefit most, again, are the immunosuppressed patients, people that don't make uh, great immune responses on their own. Uh, the study that has impressed me the most is the study by Libster, recently published in the New England Journal, which looked at patients who had uh, presented with only a couple days of symptoms to um, hospitals in Argentina, and they were randomized to get plasma or placebo, uh, but yet they were uh, severely ill and in the ICU. And those that got plasma certainly had improvements in both mortality and faster resolution of illness. So uh, I, I think that's one of the best trials I've seen. Uh, there are others that are uh, more observational. So I think it definitely has a role. There's still not I would say the kind of large scale study uh, that uh, will truly change people's minds. There are several uh, in progress, one headed by Vanderbilt, another 
out of a New York a City consortium and then also the recovery trial in the United Kingdom. So I think we'll see more information about treatment of COVID-19 with the use of plasma in the next, uh, hopefully, few weeks or months. Now, uh, two other areas that are very important. One is for treatment uh, outpatients with mild to moderate disease, much like the monoclonals. That study is in progress, um, as well as for prevention after close contact. And both of these important studies actually are being coordinated uh, here at uh, Johns Hopkins. Uh, and again, we hope uh, to have some information later uh, in the winter and spring. Okay. And our next question is, what is your opinion of Biden's plan to distribute all vaccine available rather than reserve some for second doses? Yeah, so certainly the clinician in me thinks that it'd be best that people get their immunizations on a schedule that we understand from the clinical trials. On the other hand, there are so many people that are ill and there's at least some information that might suggest partial protection from a single dose. So. What I don't understand yet from the Biden plan is just the supply chain and availability. I think, you know, a delay of a week or so for getting your second dose is not likely to make a big deal. The United Kingdom is delaying its uh, program to up to 12 weeks after your first immunization effort to get more people immunized. I, I understand the public health dimensions of this and it's untested. I think uh, these are tough decisions to make. Uh, and uh, I, I, I really am I'm sort of neutral on this. Um, I would sort of hope that we'd have more vaccine. To me, the difficulty in so many areas is really the logistics of rolling out the vaccine. So just distributing it to more and making more vaccine available is really only a small part of the problem trying to get more people in our country immunized as fast as possible. Okay, thank you. And our final learner question is, is anything more known about long COVID? Is there any association between any risk factor and prevalence of lingering COVID? So uh, this is an emerging area, certainly, Faith, and a number of uh, programs in the United States are looking at this and also worldwide. So we're only beginning to get a picture, and we really don't even know the exact incidence. I think it's important, and how I might frame this before we know more about risk factors and so on, uh, is that you know people don't necessarily need severe disease. Obviously, anyone that lands in the intensive care unit for months could have problems from critical care, illness, neuropathy, and so on. But uh, even people with mild COVID-19 have uh, described problems that can linger many weeks or months. I, I think this is an opportunity to try to truly understand the mechanism of post-infectious fatigue and pain syndromes. We know this can occur after Lyme disease. We know it can occur after Epstein-Barr virus infections. So primary infections such as infectious mononucleosis. You know, I've uh, been very involved in those two areas for a number of years, and my impression from one a viral and another bacterial infection, yet both uh, cause their patients, maybe about 10 to 20%, people have persistent symptoms uh, for six months or more. It's interesting uh, that studies that I've seen do suggest that women are a little more prone than men, and this may be due to their 
uh, more active immune systems. Uh, it's also true that people that have pre-existing problems such as anxiety, depression, and so on, um, uh, seem to run into more trouble than those that lack it, although lacking those is by no means uh, wholly preventative. So <clears throat> these are the kind of studies that need to be done, but I'm hoping given how widespread these infections are, that the resources are brought to bear by our uh, biomedical establishment to foster the kind of research and hopefully uh, innovative projects that can really help address some of these questions and uh, find some answers as to why people uh, don't recuperate as fast as we hope. Dr. Allwater, thank you again for those updates. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Thanks again, Dr. Allwater. Certainly, Faith. I'm sure there'll be many more. And uh, uh, the months of uh, January and February, no doubt, will be uh, difficult for very many. I hope you all stay well and look forward to our future uh, talks. Bye-bye.